Well, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had one hell of a week, and I'm going to talk about it as well as the latest helping of new releases on this week's episode of Film Feeder. Hello and welcome back to the show, or if you're listening for the very first time, then a warm welcome to you. This is the show where I, your film chef extraordinaire Jack Martin, lay into the biggest new films to come into cinemas, streaming and on demand every week, as well as my own thoughts on a few of the main releases that are currently or about to be showing. Now, before we get into this week's episode, do make sure that you're giving us a follow on our social media channels, the handles and links to which you can find in the episode description. And if you want to support Film Feeder going forward, then I'd appreciate it if you've subscribed on Patreon at patreon.com slash filmfeeder, where any and all paid members get exclusive treats like early access to episodes, the ability to vote on future episode topics, and a whole lot more. So once again, that's patreon.com slash filmfeeder. And perhaps most important of all, please visit the Film Feeder website at filmfeeder.co.uk. It's the only place on the internet where you can find all of my written content from the past 10 years up to and including the present day. So go check out my stuff there at filmfeeder.co.uk. So this past week has been quite full on for me, as I'm sure it has for a lot of people, what with it being half term and all. But luckily I don't have any kids to look after, and instead I've just been bogging myself down in work after work after work, which given what I do doesn't exactly sound like the most taxing of jobs, but it nonetheless does take its toll because there's just so much to get done with this website and providing meaningful content for all of you lovely people to read or listen to. So Monday itself was fairly relaxed, all I had going on that day was an evening screening of the new Danish film The Promised Land, which by the way you can find and read my review for now on the website, and Tuesday was looking to be even less eventful for me, until right out of the blue I get a call from my sister. Now she happens to work for a company whose CEO is one of the backers for a new documentary called Someone's Daughter Someone's Son, which I briefly spotlighted in last week's movie menu, and I just wasn't planning on seeing the film since it wasn't going to be showing anywhere near me, but my sister called up asking me if by any chance I'd be free to go to a screening of the film that night, and then review it with some special shout-outs to her company and their mission to fight homelessness. And me being me, I thought, yeah, sure, why not? It's a good course, and I'd be helping out a sibling. So I asked where and when the screening was, and it turns out it was an 8pm showing happening all the way in Lewis, which, for those who don't know, is a rather historic village in East Sussex, not that far away from Brighton. And it's about an hour's drive from where I live, so getting there took quite a while since I started driving down in the midst of rush hour with the you know the rain just pouring down the whole time but you know i eventually got there watched the film participated in the q a with the filmmakers and by the time i got back in the car about half 10 to drive home the sat nav ended up taking me on the back route which meant that i wasn't in bed until just after midnight now imagine the thought of me operating on less sleep than i would have liked still getting up early the next morning to head over to my local multiplex for a 10 a.m screening of you guessed it madam web which i couldn't do any later in the day because I had an online meeting about 1pm and with another film to see that day I just couldn't fit them both into one afternoon so 10am it was. And if you are so eager for my thoughts on Madam Web then you can read the review for it on the Film Feeder website but suffice to say like most of the rest of the world I didn't care much for it so all in all I spent my Valentine's Day watching a pair of okay to bad movies on a lack of fundamental sleep. And then there was Thursday which kind of got to me the most because I was due to attend an event somewhere in London as I sometimes tend to do when I'm up in town. But after a point, this event just kept getting busier and busier with more and more people showing up, and as someone who does not do well among crowds to where my anxiety tends to flare up considerably,
considerably, I started having a major panic attack, which prompted me to remove myself from the situation and the event as a whole, because whatever rewards may have come from being there, it just wasn't worth being among an utter crowd of people who just weren't being considerate or respectful enough of one's needs. But in honesty, I'm sort of proud that I handled that situation on my own, because when I get into that panic mindset, I sometimes do and say stuff that's out of my control. So the fact that I knew exactly what was right for me at that moment without making things worse for myself was kind of a win. And I hope that those out there who also do suffer from anxiety or panic attacks know that there is always something that they can do to help themselves in these situations, which I know cannot be easy, especially when you're in a mental state where you just can't think straight, but you do have it within you to take control and give yourself the opportunity to handle things on your own terms. So that was my Thursday, and luckily all I had on Friday was another screening for an upcoming film, which you may or may not hear about in an upcoming episode of this show, and it was the same on Saturday as well, leaving today, Sunday, the day I'm recording this on, to make final preparations for this podcast episode and vent as much as I could about my unusually busy week in the life of an overworked film journalist. Okay, sorry, I just had to vent for a little while there, but I just needed to talk about it with someone, and I figured, who better than you, dear listener, to be held captive to my rambling rant for a good five or so minutes, but, so thank you for letting me do that. And now that it's all out of my system, let me reward your patience with a look at this week's new film releases in my specially curated movie menu. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. So with kids back at school after half term, the time is ripe for new releases just for the adults, with all sorts of foul language and debauchery to giggle senselessly at. And I have a feeling you'll get that and more from the movie of the week, Wicked Little Letters, which comes from director Thea Sharrock and screenwriter Johnny Sweet, and it's about the fallout from a series of letters delivered throughout the town of Littlehampton in the 1920s, which are filled with just the most vulgar language you could imagine at the time. But it's just one of many good reasons why you should be excited for this film, and here are just five of them. Number one, it's a hilarious challenge to British properness that is taken to verbally obscene levels, with numerous stuffy early 20th century British folk swearing their heads off with some rather inspired wordplay, as inflated by Johnny Sweet's lively and crowd-pleasing script. Number two, believe it or not, it's based on very loosely on a real-life scandal, which actually unfolded in Littlehampton shortly after the end of the First World War, and is heightened in glorious semi-fictionalised fashion here. Number three, it's got a hell of a cast, from Oscar winner Olivia Colman to Jesse Buckley, to plenty more homegrown talent like Timothy Spall, Joanna Scanlon, Anjana Vassan, Gemma Jones, and Matilda star Alicia Weir, most of whom get the chance to swap some delightfully vulgar insults with each other, many of them scoring laughs aplenty from their earnest delivery of lines I do not dare utter on this show. Number four, even with the likes of Olivia Colman among the cast, the real star is the swearing, as this film contains language that just needs to be heard, and in some cases seen, to be believed, and more often than not, it delivers some of the film's biggest laughs. And finally, the fifth reason to get excited about Wicked Little Letters is that it is such a rancid delight, one that may have you laughing in the aisles, and maybe even learning a new swear word or two, as the wildly entertaining plot reaches a delightful and unexpected conclusion. Now I'll be talking a bit more about Wicked Little Letters later on in the show, but for now I hope that's enough to sell you on this film, which hits cinemas courtesy of distributor Studio Canal on Friday the 23rd of February. 
Moving on now to the week's other cinema releases. First up is the relationship drama Memory, which comes from acclaimed filmmaker Michelle Franco, the Mexican director and writer who previously made films like After Lucia, Chronic, and New Order, and who here tells the deeply human story of a social worker, played by Jessica Chastain, who has an unusual encounter with a former school acquaintance, played by Peter Sarsgaard, who is suffering from early-onset dementia. And it's about them finding common ground and growing closer together as they each work through their past traumas and current situations. And again, I'll save the extra information about this film for later on in the show, as well as for an exclusive interview I was able to conduct with the director himself, Michel Franco, which I'll play for you very soon. But that's all I currently have to say about Memory, which also arrives in cinemas via distributor Bohemia Media from the 23rd of February. Next up is Perfect Days, the new film from the legendary filmmaker Vim Vendors, who some of you may recognise as the director behind such films as Wings of Desire in Paris, Texas, as well as documentaries like Buena Vista Social Club and more recently the 3D artist film Anselm, who here moves the action over to Tokyo as he tells the simple but pleasant story of Hirayama, played by acclaimed Japanese actor Koji Yakusho, who's a toilet cleaner that has a specific everyday routine which doesn't amount to much, but it brings him a whole lot of happiness. How much to be exact, I'll reveal in my review a bit later on, but right now I'll say that it is a beautiful film that's coming to your screens thanks to Mubi, which is releasing the film in cinemas from the 23rd of February. Then we're heading far, far back in time towards the Stone Age, which is where the chilling new horror Out of Darkness is set. This comes from debut filmmaker Andrew Cumming, who tells the story of a tribe of early humans who, while searching for a new land to call home, find themselves hunted by a mysterious being. And know before you head to the message boards, it's not the Predator. But honestly, a movie like this doesn't need the Predator to be interesting, because for one, it boasts the fact that it's spoken entirely in a brand new Basque-inspired language invented exclusively for this film called Tola, which goes to show the level of commitment on the part of Cumming and his fellow filmmakers to really go the extra level, rather than just have everyone speak the standard English the whole time for the sake of the audience. And there are plenty more fascinating thrills to be had with Out of Darkness, which Signature Entertainment is releasing in cinemas on Friday the 23rd. Next, we have a rather timely new drama from director Michael Winterbottom, the historical romance Shoshana, which is set in the Middle East during the 1930s, a time when Palestine was under heavy British occupation, and it follows a pair of English officers stationed in Tel Aviv, played by Douglas Booth and Harry Melling, who are searching for an elusive Zionist militant. But their search turns complicated when one of them falls for Irina Starshenbaum's Shoshana Borovchov, who happens to be the daughter of a Labour Zionist founder. As you can imagine, what with the war in the Middle East still raging on, there's a lot of unintended relevancy with this particular story, as it shows how the conflict between Israel and Palestine has been going on for decades, but at its heart is an engaging political thriller with a touching, if tragic, romance. So make sure you check out Shoshana, as released by Altitude Films from the 23rd. Following on from that, filmmaker Everardo Gonzalez presents a unique new vision of Mexican cartels in his new docudrama, A Wolf Pack Called Ernesto, which is told through the perspective of a gang of under-18 Sicarios, collectively known as Ernesto. Now it's interesting because to protect the young subjects' identities, Gonzalez has mounted cameras to the back of his subjects' heads, ensuring that we follow them throughout their dark journey without completely revealing their identity. And then the filmmaker blends the real-life stories he captures along the way with a semi-fictionalized tell that's no less steeped in reality. So make sure you experience the genre-defying film A Wolf Pack Called Ernesto, which comes from Sovereign Film Distribution, when it also comes to cinemas on the 23rd. 
Then anime fans will be delighted to know that they will have the chance to experience on the big screen the start of a brand new chapter in the saga of Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, which is the story of young Tanjiro, who after his family is slaughtered and his beloved sister is transformed into a demon, resolves to become a demon slayer and help rid the world of some of its most monstrous foes. With this special feature presentation signalling the start of an arc known as To the Hashira Training, which as that title suggests, evolves Tanjiro beginning his training to become the highest ranking of demon slayers known as Hashira, which may well involve battling some pretty nasty demons along the way. But fans can know for sure when Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Naiba to the Hashira training gets its theatrical release via Sony on the 23rd of February. And the last major cinema release this week is a late edition, but certainly one that shines bright. It's American Star, the action thriller that stars Ian McShane as an aging hitman who travels to Fuerteventura for his final assignment. But when the target doesn't show up, McShane finds himself with some considerable downtime, where he befriends some locals and begins to reassess his life choices, until inevitably his old life creeps back at the most inopportune time. Which may at first sound like typical assassin stuff, but a smart and soulful narrative as well as an all-timer performance by Ian McShane, make it one that could very well hit its mark. So that's American Star, which Vertigo Releasing is bringing both to cinemas and to digital platforms where you can rent or buy it at home from the Friday the 23rd of February. As for this week's streaming and on-demand releases, there's only a few to spotlight, but they're still definitely worth talking about, especially when one of them is Tyler Perry's new Netflix thriller Mia Culpa, which stars Kelly Rowland as a criminal defence attorney who is assigned to the case of an artist played by Trevant Rhodes, who's accused of murdering his girlfriend. But soon the two find themselves going well beyond the lawyer-client boundaries, which starts to cloud her judgement in increasingly dangerous manners. Naturally, any new film by Tyler Perry is a cause for celebration, even if it's not always for the intended reasons, and Mia Culpa could well find itself fitting nicely among the media mogul's line of bonkers psychological thrillers like Acrimony, Temptation, and A Fall from Grace, when it arrives on the streaming service from Friday the 23rd. Then, over on Sky Cinema, Red Right Hand is a different kind of crime thriller, one that stars Orlando Bloom as a reformed ex-con living a mostly peaceful life with his brother-in-law and orphan niece in a small Appalachian town. But when he finds out that the brother-in-law is heavily in debt to local crime boss Andy McDowell, Bloom is forced to work for her in a series of criminal activity that becomes more and more dangerous, all of which promises to make for a rather compelling thriller that you can once again check out on Sky Cinema from Sunday the 25th of February. And coming exclusively to digital platforms, where you can rent or buy it at your own leisure, is the supernatural horror Deliver Us, which sees a nun residing at a remote convent in Russia becoming pregnant with twin boys, which she claims to be an immaculate conception. So in response, the Vatican sends two priests, one of whom is played by the film's director, Leroy Kunz, to investigate the mysterious circumstances, with concerns that the twins fulfil a prophecy where one will become the Messiah, but the other will be the Antichrist, which, as you may expect, causes all sorts of hell to break loose in a creepy religious horror that raises plenty of tough moral dilemmas as well as some genuinely terrifying set pieces. And Altitude Films is bringing this to online outlets like Amazon, Sky Store, Google Play and more, where you can rent or buy Deliver Us from today, Monday the 19th.
Finally, there's only one big re-release to spotlight this week, and when I say it's a good one, I mean it, because it happens to be one of my favourite films of all time. It's none other than Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the classic Arthurian comedy that is back on the big screen for its 48th and a half anniversary, and it's the hilarious tale of Graham Chapman's King Arthur and his various Knights of the Round Table, all played by fellow Pythons John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and Terry Gilliam, the latter do having also directed the film going on an epic quest to find the fabled Holy Grail, only to come across numerous setbacks along the way. So for me, this is probably the greatest straightforward comedy ever made, because there's not one line of dialogue or piece of physical humour that fails to get a laugh. And of all the Monty Python movies, I feel it has the best gags, the most memorable sequences, and it's by far the one I quote the most. But perhaps the core reason it means so much to me is that it really shaped my own personal sense of humour when I was younger, which all of the Python stuff has from the TV shows to the movies, but this one in particular captured my imagination the most because it just revels in its uniquely silly humour without taking things too far, which to this day I am just so in awe of as someone with autism that otherwise wouldn't have been able to identify this kind of humour so eloquently. So as you can tell, I really do hold Monty Python and the Holy Grail close to my heart, and you too can check it out on the big screen when it begins showing in cinemas from Wednesday the 21st. So that does it for this week's movie menu. Hopefully you're now a bit more enlightened as to what you can expect coming to your screens over the next seven days. And most importantly, I hope that you've managed to identify at least one movie on this list that you're eager to see at the earliest opportunity, which is honestly all that matters whenever I do this. But if you still want more details on just some of the week's new releases, then stick around because I'm about to go into a bit more analytical detail about them in my ever insightful reviews. So first up this week is my take on Memory, director Michelle Franco's new film starring Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard, which I first saw last October during the BFI London Film Festival, and managed to, somewhat ironically, remember it well enough to approach UK distributor Bohemia Media and see if there were any opportunities to talk to any of the talent before its release later this week. And sure enough, they were more than happy to oblige, as they arranged some time for me to talk with director Michelle Franco about some of the hard-hitting themes and intentions behind the film. So here's my brief but insightful interview with the man himself. Enjoy. So I am joined now over Zoom by Michelle Franco, the director, writer and producer behind the festival hit Memory, which is arriving in UK cinemas on Friday the 23rd of February. Michelle, uh, thank you very much for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Looking forward <laughs> to the release of the film and, and happy to be talking to you. Oh, excellent. So I want to start by saying how much I really like this film. I've had the opportunity to see it a couple of times, uh, including last October when it screened at the BFI London Film Festival. And both times I was just so blown away by how understated and grounded this story was. And I want to ask where the concept for the film came from and if it changed drastically over development. Uh, the point of departure of the idea came to me every time it's different but in this case it's it's just the scene that moment where they uh run into each other at the class reunion and and he follows her home uh and i didn't know why who were these people but it that's how it started the the process of writing this movie and uh then slowly i started to 
answer those questions, you know, to, to understand that they're broken people, uh, they're mature, uh, and eventually they, they give uh, love or, you know, they, 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 they decide to take a gamble to risk and, 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 and to develop a friendship, a love relationship. Um, but that I understood very, you know, while, while answering all those questions. I, I like seeing broken people on screen. That's not often done. I don't know why. Well, it, it certainly works here. And uh, I think everyone else who's seen this movie will agree that the lead performances by Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard are honestly incredible. Uh, what was the process between you and the actors to create these characters and the emotional arcs that they end up going on together? Uh, I guess it's, first of all, the script, uh, but mostly good casting, uh, finding the right actors that will take what's on the page and interpret that and make it their own and, you know, making a lot more. They're always doing what's on the page, but they do it in ways that surprise me. Uh, and I give them, I encourage them to, to always speak their minds and to find different ways. I, I never over direct them, never tell them what to do. Every, every morning when I, when we're about to shoot a scene, I start the other way around. I tell them, what do you imagine? How would you play it? And then I decide where the camera should be. And um, Memory is a film that tackles a range of complex subjects from past trauma to cognitive decline. And I appreciate that the film doesn't really offer any easy resolutions for many of these themes, nor does it go on a particularly particularly conventional path. So how did you approach these topics without giving into many of the standard tropes that other films might be guilty of using? Uh, thanks for saying that. Well, I hate when I'm looking at a movie and, and it's patronizing and they're telling me what to think and where to look and, and you know, there's like music to tell me this is a sad moment, you know. I, 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 I think film and good actors uh, and the right camera position can provide a lot of space for, for the audience to figure out things for themselves. And a scene can, can contradict itself and, and be multi-layered and if that's achieved uh, on a few important scenes throughout a movie, I think the experience is a lot more satisfying. But I never do anything uh, without a reason, you know. There's always a point of view. There's always, uh, between the cinematographer and me, there's always, we understand why the cameras are. And we're not, like in most productions, just shooting coverage everything from every end, which I find very, you know, unappealing. Yeah, I, I, I noticed you mentioned uh, the, um, the the music, the lack of, lack of non-digestic score and the cinematography. And there's a lot, those are things that I really appreciate about, the, appreciate about the filmmaking here because there's an effective use of background noise in place of the non-digestic score. And the cinematography, I feel, doesn't get a lot of credit for some very atmospheric static shots and use of depth of field. Most notably the first time we see Peter Sarsgaard's character at the high school reunion. 
And then I'd like to ask how you utilize both of those things to create an effective audiovisual experience as well as an emotional one. Well, that, that's a good example, the one you just pointed out, because it's not just me and the cinematographer. The way it was scripted, uh, Peter was supposed to be looking at her from across the room. Uh, that meant we were going to have to cut back and forth, uh, which I don't like doing, but I didn't see any other solution. Uh, the way it was written, she would be uncomfortable because he was staring from across the hall. And then he told me, Peter, why would I not go to her, you know? I, it, and it took me five seconds to say, then go to her. Let's do that. And I immediately understood then I could do it on, on a single shot. And then we found this device of him. Uh, and of course, this is a conversation, a, a, a two-side conversation. I'm talking with the actors and I'm talking uh, separately with the... Uh, director of cinematography. So that's a good example of something that on the page was different, but but I'm never imposing. I'm, I'm always wanting to find the best uh, solution, the most interesting one. And that's a good example of it. Uh, I, I'm a strong believer that there's only one correct position for the camera in a room. And, and that's the whole, you know, I, I think a director, a crew that doesn't understand that a producer uh, should be doing something else. That doesn't mean you cannot cut 10 times. Like, uh, you know, Lars von Trier on Breaking the Waves would cut and jump cut uh, different angles, but he always understand why every angle, you know, he's saying something with every camera position, with every cut. He's getting you deeper into it. It's not just shoot the one that's talking, you know, and 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 the, the, the famous coverage. Who are you covering yourself from, you know? I, I find it you you see what I'm saying, like you you gotta have ideas as other Absolutely. And uh, moving from that quite uh, fully loaded question to a bit of a standard one, uh, but what is something that you would like general audiences to take away after seeing this film? Uh, well, first of all, a good cinematic experience, uh, you know, it should be unpredictable uh, and it should also be hard to explain. It should be a lot about a lot of things, many things at the same time. But to try to be more concrete, Jessica always says, uh, maybe people should be kinder to each other. Uh, in big cities like New York, uh, often you don't put yourself on the shoes of the people in front of you in the subway or anything like that. And I don't know, to, to, to see the private life of these two and the challenges they're facing. Uh, yeah, that's a nice uh, thing to say, why not? Hmm. And uh, my final question to you is something I like to ask everyone that I interview for the show, which serves up the latest film options every week. And basically, what was the last memorable film that you saw in a cinema? And what, what about it made it so memorable? Uh, I had such a busy year that I, that I'm, I, 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 there are like 10 movies that I want to see that I haven't seen that came up from Cannes and Venice. Uh, so I have to go back to the last one that impressed me, I think it was, uh, I never know how to say this. And I was ashamed to tell the director how much I love this movie without being able to say the name, but the Banshees of Irishin or whatever you call it, 
<laughs> I love that movie. Uh, again, uh, it's unpredictable because it, it tells you where it's going, but you don't understand how far can it go. And it keeps pushing and it seems to be about something, but then it's about many other things. I find it a beautiful film. Well, it's a great selection. And thank you so much once again for your time today, Michelle. And for those listening, a quick reminder that you can watch Memory in cinemas across the UK from Friday the 23rd of February. So uh, thank you so much, Mike, Michelle. Uh, take care and congratulations on a wonderful film. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Once again, thanks to the people at Bohemia Media for making that interview with Michelle Franco happen. And if you want to see the video version of that interview, then head to patreon.com slash filmfeeder, where paid subscribers can exclusively access it. But now it's time to share my thoughts on the film itself. So in a similar vein to Apple's Causeway, Memory is a film that rests almost entirely on its two central performances. Not that the rest of the film is of a significantly lesser quality, but it's clear from the offset that the material is being made a hell of a lot stronger by the efforts of lead actors Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard, both of whom are very much the driving force with their uniformly excellent turns, which turn an already solid movie into a true acting showcase. So Chastain plays Sylvia, a recovering alcoholic who works as a carer at a residential home for people with special needs, while also looking after her teenage daughter Anna, who's played by Brooke Timber. Though she maintains a good relationship with her younger sister Olivia, who's Merritt Weaver, who has a family and seems much better off than Sylvia is, she is estranged from her wealthy mother Samantha, who's Jessica Harper, for devastating reasons that become more apparent later on. And then, whilst reluctantly attending a high school reunion, Sylvia is betubed by a seemingly creepy guy named Saul, played by Sarsgaard, who follows her home from the event, but it soon becomes clear that he means no harm, and we eventually learn that he is suffering from early-onset dementia, for which he is being looked after by his brother Isaac, who's Josh Charles, and his college-bound niece Sarah, who's Elsie Fisher. And their initial encounter paves the way for some unexpected confrontations about their pasts, which eventually turns into something more meaningful between them. So in case it wasn't painfully clear by now, the best part of memory is by far and away the two leads' magnetic performances, including Jessica Chastain, who, despite her Oscar win for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, is still thankfully making time for smaller, slightly less showy roles such as in this and Netflix's medical thriller The Good Nurse, and she is endlessly compelling as she seeks out some dark and troubled places to take her character Sylvia to, and you can feel a sense of anger and resentment bubbling away inside of her, again for reasons revealed later on that justify her emotions, but there is still a decent, albeit flawed, human being fighting back against it all, which Chastain excellently channels in an understated turn that conveys everything it needs to without going overboard. And meanwhile, Peter Sarsgaard, who won the Best Actor Prize at last year's Venice Film Festival for his performance here, has plenty of material to work with in the more challenging role of the two leads, but he never makes his dementia-ridden Saul feel like a one-note archetype, instead tapping into a vulnerable and regretful side to the character that easily earns a healthy mixture of sympathy and empathy from the viewer. Sarsgaard gives an extraordinarily tender performance which humanises a character that is staggeringly easy to get wrong, something that the actor avoids by focusing more on his frustrations that arise from his declining mental condition, to where you really do feel for this guy as he tries to make sense of his current circumstances and how he can move forward amidst them. 
And the movie surrounding these two fantastic performances is also quite strong, though it is clear that they are indeed the main driving force behind most of what is working about it, with Franco's script and direction taking a smooth, matter-of-fact approach to the storytelling, not spending too long on certain revelations, but still giving them enough time for them to land an emotional impact. But sometimes, though, the film will introduce a potential bombshell, only to then backtrack significantly in order to perhaps make a certain person more likeable, like one accusation fairly early on at first seems to set the tone, but then it all turns out to be a misunderstanding and then all is fine once more. And then furthermore, it's the kind of film that comes to a complete stop just as things seem to be steering towards a more conventional conclusion, which can be abrupt and unsatisfactory in the eyes of some. But the filmmaking as a whole is solid enough to overcome some of its narrative hurdles, and Franco manages to give his film a steady beating heart that does make you really fall in love with these two characters and their ultimate dynamic. But it is the performances of Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard that are very much the combined central attraction, elevating the material more than it already has has been to a level where it's impossible to not be moved in some way by their very real and quietly devastating turns. If nothing else, see memory for them alone, but you might just be pleasantly surprised by the movie surrounding them as well, which is powerful enough to stay long in your mind afterwards. So for that, I'm going to give memory 4 stars out of 5, which makes it a dish you'll be hungry for more of, and you can find it in UK and Irish cinemas from the 23rd of February. Next up, I was able to get an early preview for this week's biggest release, Wicked Little Letters, which calls to mind the common act of trolling. Now, trolling can be an art form, whether it's to mock and annoy unpopular public figures or to spread influence for a just cause. However, the most common form continues to be the negative type, one that will say just the most unimaginatively vulgar things about anyone or anything, just because they somehow don't fit their limited worldview. Or, more likely, they're just sad, lonely individuals who get a quick thrill from leaving horrible comments about others to fill a void in their otherwise empty lives. It's hard to know when exactly the act of trolling truly began, but director Thea Sharrock's film puts forth the intriguing notion that the world's first troll might have been someone living in, of all places, the English village of Littlehampton in the 1920s. And such a concept is explored in this refreshingly potty-mouthed, if ultimately light-hearted, historical comedy that takes a few interesting swipes at conservative British society along the way. Based on a story that is, according to an opening title card, more true than you might think, the film is set in the town during the post-war years, where the reserved, God-fearing Edith Swan, played by Livia Coleman, who lives with her very controlling father Edward, who's Timothy Spall, is neighbours with Jesse Buckley's Rose Gooding, a recent Irish immigrant who is much more liberated and free-spirited than Edith could ever imagine herself to be. And the two of them were once close friends, but a snafu involving Rose's daughter Nancy, played by Alicia Weir from Matilda, drove them apart and after Edith begins receiving a series of vulgar, foul-mouthed letters in the mail, she is quick to blame her rowdy neighbour who has a blue vocabulary to match what's in the letters. However, after Rose is arrested and charged with the crime, police officer Gladys Moss, who's Anjana Vassan, who herself has to deal with frequent jabs and harassment by her male colleagues, suspects that Rose might actually be innocent, and so she sets out to find the real culprit before their so-called wicked little letters, which eventually circulate throughout the town, begin throwing everything out of control. The film, as written by comedian Johnny Sweet under Sharrock's direction, has an aesthetic you'd normally expect to find in a classic Ealing Studios comedy, from the quaint early 20th century English village to characters with simplistic traits and even more straightforward dialogue. 
Of course, it's when people start swearing like sailors that the illusion of pleasance is shattered, but even then, the tone ultimately remains gentle and somewhat inoffensive, like a film that is aimed more towards a more middle-aged crowd, albeit one that can stomach some frequent strong language. It is a slightly odd direction to take, given the further-reaching comedic potential of hearing proper English civilians use language bluer than the sea surrounding Littlehampton. Imagine an episode of The Archers as directed by Quentin Tarantino, and you'll have an image there as well as a number of supporting performances that are clearly leaning into outlandishly farcical territory. But Sherrick does find ways to make her gentler approach work well enough for audiences who want to laugh at some amusing swear words every now and then. Uh, on that note, it is important to declare that Wicked Little Debtors is not as outwardly comedic as the trailers may have you believe, because beyond the fact that Sweet Script isn't exactly a laugh-a-minute type of narrative, honestly the swearing itself does most of the heavy lifting in that department, as does the ever-delightful presence of Olivia Coleman. Sharrett keeps the story from slipping too haphazardly into farce, with long stretches where the drama takes full precedence, particularly how the accusations against Jessie Buckley's Rose threaten to disrupt her life for good. Furthermore, the film isn't afraid to get pretty harrowing at times, from scenes set in prison to some terrifying moments where the ferocity of Timothy Spall's character comes out in full force, to even a death scene that is more shocking when put into a particular context. Admittedly, moments like these can create a sense of confusion surrounding the overall tone, which may subtract from the overall enjoyment one might expect to have going in. However, it's in these moments where the film also displays its brightest qualities, as they pave the way for some biting social commentary about patriarchal norms, and the consequences of being so reserved that the only outlet one has left is utter societal disruption. Case in point, the identity of the letter writer is revealed about halfway through the film, and it presents a truly interesting parallel to today's psychology behind the common internet troll, especially at a time when certain civilians were fully expected to be seen and not heard, even when they held reasonable positions of power. And whether or not their identity comes as a true surprise is ultimately down to the viewer, but the reveal does make a number of dynamics more engaging than had it been safer much later on, and it manages to keep the narrative and a certain sect of characters from becoming too one note. In some ways, there are plenty of avenues where I personally feel that Wicked Little Letters could have taken some time to better flesh out, to where it might have worked as a Martin McDonough-esque dark comedy about fractured neighbourly relationships and the damaging effects of strict patriarchal control. However, for what it is, the film works fine enough, with some light giggles coming from all the school ground language being thrown about by a number of stuffy British types. And of course, there are some top-notch lead performances by the reliable likes of Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley to keep things at bay. As for its depiction of possibly the world's first instance of pure trolling, which a hundred years later would become more commonplace but somehow less refined, it can't help but feeling a bit too tame for its own good. So all in all, Wicked Little Letters gets three stars, or the notion of being a decent stomach filler, for it is an amusing but tame historical comedy about an early form of common trolling, which tackles some interesting themes amidst a wobbly and ultimately inoffensive tone, barring the foul language that carries much of the light comedy, as do some bright performances by Coleman and Buckley. So make sure you keep an eye out for it when it also comes to cinemas on the 23rd. Finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about Perfect Days, the new film from director Vin Vendors that's up for the International Feature Film Oscar in a few weeks, and I was able to see this at another early screening where I found it to be a gorgeous slice-of-life drama that values life in all of its precious glory, no matter how small and insignificant it may be to everyone else. The film, which Vendors also co-wrote with screenwriter Takuma Takasaki, follows the life of a man named Hirayama, played by Koji Yakusho, who lives a very simple but carefully structured life. 
Every morning, he wakes up nice and early before heading to work as a cleaner of public toilets. Then during his lunch break, he sits in a park taking pictures of the trees above him with his old camera. And after work is done for the day, he visits a bathhouse to freshen up. He eats at a local food joint and finally heads home, reading more pages of a book before then calling it a night. And it's more or less the same for Hirayama the day after and the day after that. But he doesn't really care, for it's a routine that he's clearly happy to follow, and one that he has evidently spent a great deal of time perfecting, to where the slightest unplanned detour or unexpected appearance or non-appearance of close ones can throw him out of the loop for the rest of the day. However, even when that does happen, such as the arrival of his teenage niece, or his far less competent co-worker selfishly hijacking his van to take out his date after his motorcycle stalls, Hirayama rarely, if ever, complains or even views his life as a rotten state of endless misery. On the contrary, he loves it, and constantly finds joy and pleasure in the little things he comes across during his day, from playing an ongoing game of tic-tac-toe with an unknown toilet user, to listening to the likes of Van Morrison, Patti Smith and Lou Reed on his many old cassette tapes as he drives across the city for work. So, as someone with autism who greatly values certain routines, I found Perfect Days to be an unexpectedly cathartic viewing experience. Because although there is no evidence that the character of Hirayama is on the spectrum, he is someone who undoubtedly displays signs of reserved frustration whenever he's thrust outside his set path, which in my experience as an autistic person is fairly common to go through. So I identified immensely with his frustrations as things just do not go as planned, but also with how he nonetheless attempts to find optimism in things that may mean nothing to anyone else, but mean the absolute world to him. Kind of like how I often enjoy writing and talking about films even when nobody around me could care about the latest film by filmmakers that they aren't even bothered to learn more about. So seeing the importance of routine be represented in this film as such a gently empowering and celebratory thing was euphoric for me, because a lot of other movies tend to show any repetitive structure as a mechanical cycle to be escaped from, which might work for some people, but for others like myself, it's one of the few things that gets us up every morning. And as you might expect from a vastly experienced filmmaker like Vim Vendors, it is also a very well-made piece of cinema that constructs a mountain out of its soulful and poetic nature. The loose slice-of-life narrative, which is comprised of four brief stories originally developed as short films before Perfect Days became a feature, allows the filmmaker to focus on minor details which represent the bliss that Hirayama gets out of his constructed daily routine, with vendors also employing some mesmerizing abstract visuals during regular interludes as the protagonist settles into his dreams, which calmly show his content lifestyle as well as how much it clearly means to him. And Hirayama himself is a man of very few words, in fact I don't think he has more than 30 lines of dialogue in the entire film, but actor Koji Yakusho, who won the Best Actor Prize for this film at last year's Cannes Film Festival, beautifully conveys enough of the character's drive that makes him endlessly interesting despite the lack of traditional characterization, right up to an incredibly acted final shot that's a close-up of his face where you feel every single conflicting emotion going on inside his head. So this is ultimately a truly beautiful film about finding happiness in the smallest of things, as well as within the pleasant and constructive structure of a simple daily routine. And those looking for something more narratively driven might not exactly get that here, but instead they will find themselves absorbed into the plentiful life of someone who has no real qualms with the world, nor does he need to when he's already worked out the meaning of life, even if it is just his own. So yeah, this film comes highly recommended, especially if, like me, you have an autism diagnosis and want to show someone exactly how and why having a strict routine is beneficial to one's own sense of joy.
So if you couldn't tell, I really did love this film, which earns the full five stars from me, meaning that it is top quality cuisine that you can also find in cinemas from the 23rd of February. And that concludes this week's episode of Film Feeder. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels listed in the episode description, as well as visiting both the Film Feeder website itself at filmfeeder.co.uk and our Patreon page at patreon.com filmfeeder. Until next week, when I'll be giving you the first look at the hugely anticipated Dune Part 2, I'm Jack Martin, your film chef extraordinaire, wetting your appetite for film each and every week. That's all for now. See you next time.